So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, David, my friend David. Yes, yes. Uh, it's so good to be back together. It's been a couple of weeks since we were able to have a recorded conversation here. Yeah. It's, you know, outside, usually I'm very, very affected by weather. Mm-hmm. And I pressed on dark and, you know, dank days. And it's a little easier for me to be up when it's sunny. Well, today we're living, it looks like uh, the projections are it's going to rain all day. Right, yeah. There's a warning that there may be uh, tornadoes coming through the area. Yeah. But unaccountably, man, I just feel great. Well, good. Yeah, it may have it may have something to do with the fact that, once again, I'm not drinking. That, that may uh, play a role in my improved mindset. Well, I got that's, a good night's sleep last night. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very good. You know that. Yeah, um, I I I talk to people about it all the time, but um, that that re- residual anxiety that alcohol brings when yeah. the buzz wears off by the next morning, um, yeah, and we start our days out tired and anxious and all that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of chemical reasons for that, but we always feel so much better. Um, without all that residual anxiety and uh, the sugar yeah. drop and all the crap yeah. that goes with it. So I'm glad. I'm very glad you're feeling good. Yeah. You know, you know, for years I have taken refuge in my identity as a sex addict because uh, I was able to put myself in that category, which meant that I that I could engage in other questionable questionable behavior, uh, but I'm not addicted. So I'm, you know, I'm free to just kind of, yeah. you know, do what I want. Yeah. And uh, so since I'm a sex addict and not an alcoholic, I've been saying for years that I'm not, a, and I still would say, by the way, David, that mm-hmm. I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. But I do think, I do think that uh, with my, de- you know, uh, commitment and control in drinking, because, uh, you know, I, I've been a committed controlled drinker now for, th- oh God, it's got to be 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, I could say I'm not an alcoholic, so I can I can keep on this behavior safely. Like I'm a I'm a normal drinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea in my mind was I'm not really paying a price because I'm not crossing the line. I don't have a story like the stories I hear uh, in the AA meetings. Right. Not a lot of unwanted outcomes and things like that, but. Yeah, yeah. Unless, unless I get really honest and start looking at what, what uh, you know, some of the, some of the price I really have paid, mm-hmm. if only in lost sleep, or lost focus, or lost time, and God mm-hmm. knows what what price I might have paid uh, health wise over the years, because uh, there there is a price to be paid. Anyway, all of that to say, uh, you know, magically, uh, you know, mysteriously. I feel a hell of a lot better when I'm not drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, alcohol and our relationship to it is so interesting because people say, you know, that they're drinking to feel better, but, um, you know, we're usually taking a depressant when we feel depressed and, um, and then (laughs) we feel really crappy because, uh, the next day that depressant comes with, you know, a lot of, um, 
a lot of residual effects and, and right, our, right, right. you know, our sleep levels are affected. We've had people on the show talk about, you know, how sleep cycles and things like that are uh, impacted by um, alcohol and, and you don't have mm-hmm. to be drinking in an, in a, in a problematic way or, a, a you know, drinking alcoholically or however we would define mm-hmm. that um, in order to have some really negative effects uh, from alcohol. Yeah. You know, right. Uh, so I, I am, you know, I, I'm thrilled when people just say, I just feel better and I don't enjoy um, having to drag myself around in the first half of my day. You know, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Uh, is always just great news. So I'm very glad. I'm very, very glad. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Doing some more self care. Uh, yeah. I had some, let me see. Oh golly! You haven't you haven't seen me since they they I, they did a holy feel. I, I they I went to the doctor and they excised a big chunk of my ear to get rid of some uh, basal cell carcinoma. Oh man, no, I have not. Yeah, 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 yeah. But fortunately, great plastic surgeon puts it all back together, and they assure me that when it's done, you know, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. But uh, yeah. Self-care means actually going and addressing a concern. You know, I ignored that ear for a long time, Mm, Uh, mm -hmm. you know, and finally the urging of my wife went and had it, you know, biopsied and had it looked at and, you know, gosh, you know, now we got to do something. Yeah. It is amazing how we keep telling ourselves that something is either going to magically correct itself or that there will be a better, perfect time, you know, to check it out. Um, Yeah. All that stuff. I, you know, I did the same thing with this stupid AFib thing that I'm dealing with. I, you know, for the better part of the pandemic, I've been winded and tired and I had an issue with it five years ago, like I talked about, you know, a few weeks ago. And, um, and I knew the symptoms, you know, I knew that this was very likely, you know, um, not, um, gonna go well without some intervention. Um, and it, you know, it took me until I couldn't climb a a whole flight of steps without stopping, um, to really decide that maybe that's not normal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when the the elderly are passing you in (laughs) Costco or, you know, the, the little lady with the chihuahua is saying, excuse me, can I go just go around you? You know, that's, uh, (laughs) that's an ego bit there, but yeah, we have a, we have a well-developed capacity for denial, don't we? It's uh, something we learn during active addiction that bleeds into other parts of life. And, and, you know, a big part of recovery is learning to face life as it is and uh, stop lying to ourselves, stop filtering as best we can, uh, stop filtering our observations. And when necessary, ask other people for their perspective and actually listen to it. Give some credence yeah. to the idea that perhaps somebody else can see something in me that I can't see and I don't have to be defensive about it. Well, exactly. And it's amazing how the <laughs> when you start you know, canvassing some people about your issues, <laughs> you get a lot yeah. of the same feedback from sensible people and you realize <laughs> that maybe this is quite obvious to everybody but you. You, you know, yeah. you feel kind of like, well, maybe, okay, I, I'll, you know, maybe I'll relax my magical thinking long enough to go uh, explore what might be going on. But, you know, whether it's with, you know, what I, what I want to believe my relationship with alcohol is, or whether it's my relationship to my body or the thing growing on my skin, or even how I feel about certain things or what I believe about certain things, you know, or I mean, what my limitations are. Yeah. Yeah. Rah, yeah. 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 The more honest we can be with ourselves, that's when we can be honest with others, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah, but well, boy, we, sorry. we have a guest, we have a guest today who, who learned during the process of recovery, uh, how to listen to and act upon the advice of others. Mm-hmm. And it had dramatic, uh, results in his life. Listeners, you're going to love this conversation with Seth Perry. Hang on. We'll be right back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. David, once again, you have cast your net far and wide and managed to pull into the boat a five-star guest all the way from uh, 
from Exotic Canada. We've got Seth Perry with us on the show today. Uh, why don't you give us a bit of an introduction, David? Yeah, um, Seth came to us um, just kind of letting us know uh, some interesting things about his own recovery and his own work in recovery, his own positive work. Um, Seth is a former chaplain at a treatment center, and he's got his own recovery story as well. He's also uh, a um, a Lutheran minister uh, presently, and um, he, he he has some perspectives, I think, coming from uh, things he's learned as a recovering person working in the chaplaincy of a treatment facility. And I thought that would be a really interesting conversation because I don't often hear about chaplain work in treatment. And so I thought that might be something we could explore. Uh, and, and here's some of the things he learned about himself, about recovery um, and people and their faith perspectives, their broader spiritual perspectives. And so um, I reached out to him and he is kind enough to make some time today to join us. So Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be on the show. Absolutely. Well, Seth, uh, nobody uh, kind of blunders or wanders into this field just out of idle curiosity. One thing we've learned, almost anybody who's working in recovery, helping others, is kind of working some 12-step 12, 12 work, uh, giving back what's been given. Uh, when we lift up the lid, just about everybody we talk to has a recovery story of their own. I assume you do too? Yes, I do. Absolutely. And... Uh, Really, I, I didn't start from a, a very uh, desperate place in my life. I grew up in an upper middle class home and my parents were very nurturing. We were a, a Christian family growing up and I was very involved in the church. And my parents did not have a, a problem with alcohol or drugs. Uh, mm -hmm. It seemed to skip a generation, really. And, yeah. So their parents had? Yeah, my grandfather um, and also my great uncle, uh, he he died uh, uh, either a possible suicide or um, or uh, uh, just a, a car accident. But there's some speculation if he died in the 60s of, 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 a, of a suicide. Mm -hmm. He was someone who I had no idea about until I was about nine years old that my grandmother had an, an older brother. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely one of those recovery family secrets you know yeah. what i'm saying oh yeah 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 mm -hmm. yeah, yeah so what was uh, describe your discovery when you uh, when son when at what point did alcohol become an answer to a question you had yeah definitely so uh super involved in youth group in my mm -hmm. early teens and uh as soon as i had that first drink um, you know, I was kind of feeling a lot of, uh, stress and pressure at home. I had one brother who had been acting out, um, and, and causing a lot of kind of, um, you know, afternoon arguments in my home that would, uh, lead into the dinner table, mm -hmm. tense conversation. And the, the home environment was kind of one of what you would call a dysfunctional family. And my parents were moving towards a divorce in private behind closed doors they were talking about it we didn't really know mm -hmm. about it then but all that was weighing on my shoulders and so i went ahead and after you know my early teens saying hey i'm not going to be someone who drinks I, you know this is what they say what you should be doing at church you should be you know not drinking you should not try, try drugs but uh, lo and behold when I first had that drink, then all the stress and pressure uh, of the home life really just left me and I could just become the center of attention, a funny person, uh, mm. an entertaining individual, and I could get the attention of women. So yeah. that's what happened, really. Yeah. Well, that's a, pr that, that's a pretty potent mix, man. Uh <laughs> <laughs> So, so where did what did you do with your newfound ability to uh, to entertain and enthrall the uh, fairer sex? Your new yes. superpower, yeah. My new yeah, superpower. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, absolutely every single drama class, script writing class in high school, film and television class, all uh, extracurricular activities in drama, I was signed up at and mm -hmm. those are places that were uh you know you you could smoke weed before you went you could have drinks afterwards and you you met the drama kids they they like to have parties on the weekend and there were plenty of girls there and so uh -huh. um i really just you know instead of me 
talking about what was going on at home with a professional instead of me disclosing what was going on to all of my friends in the drama club. Uh, I kept that to myself, kept that bottled mm. in and uh, continued to drink and do drugs. And uh, it really affected me quite negatively uh, early on. And I, s- I started having insomnia and uh, I would yeah. have to, you know, use drugs to sleep and, uh, and, it, and things were, were just completely unmanageable at age 17. And that's when I first tried quitting. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Wow. So you were already trying to quit when most people are ramping up. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. And and it was a it was an incredibly uncomfortable and frightening period of my life because I I realized that, you know, I had an underlying mental health condition that was was really making the effects of drugs and alcohol uh and daily use. It was really making me insane it was making mm. it hard to concentrate in class i was thinking irrationally and, and that's when i first saw a psychiatrist at age 17 so my parents were super super concerned because they knew that my uncle ralph had these um psychological uh issues when mm-hmm. he was uh when he was a teenager they'd heard the stories from my grandmother and they didn't want this to happen again but it was happening were you medicated by the psychiatrist <clears throat> so the year that I graduated high school, that's when they first tried medication. And, uh, and so that I'll tell you this, it took, uh, it, so that was at age 17. So it took 12 years to find the right mix of medication to treat my bipolar disorder. Wow. And, uh, and, and, uh, I'll tell you this, uh, the big piece of the component was, you know, the psychiatrist telling me you cannot use drugs and alcohol. It's just a, not a good mix. You've proven it to yourself here at an early age. Do yourself a favor and and don't do that. But I, I'm sure you guys know what it's like for an alcoholic to hear no. Yeah. 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 I always say in what context, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah he, and here's that interesting double bind that we encounter. If we're using alcohol to control stress, right? To deal with stress. And then we decide that we need to quit, but we can't quit. Our inability to quit causes more stress, mm-hmm. which makes it, uh, which, which, which only increases the urge to drink when we're in that middle space. Is that true? I, I, it's been true for me. I, I, I do know that, uh, that in that middle period, when I know I need to quit, I try to quit, I can't quit. I'm feeling so stressed about the fact that I can't quit and now I'm that uh, the urge to drink is ramping up. Did you experience any of that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, the, the biggest part in all that was the, um, you know, the, the, obsession of of trying to do this on my own like you know i would say no i don't need help uh and all i need to do is really just focus very hard on um on just not using and Mm -hmm. using my own willpower and the 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 shame of returning to drinking really uh is a great expression when when you say a double bind because then i would just be uh i would be full of shame for failing and uh and i would i i would be in in a rock in between a rock and a hard place honestly because i'd still be having mental health uh symptoms yeah. and uh and then i'd just be making it worse with with this relapse this you know that i that i just encountered and i really i did not want any help from anyone else Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, my phone's yeah. ringing. I just want to let it ring, and I guess you guys okay. can edit that out. Yeah, well, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're fine. Listen, we've had much worse. <laughs> <laughs> this is very homespun. We're we're good. <laughs> okay, cool. So, it's if just... it took a dozen, if it took a, if it took a dozen years to really find the right mix of medications to deal with uh, the bipolar issue, yeah, what were your twenties like? My 20s were a absolute chaotic mess. And so I got my Bachelor of Fine Arts in in film. And uh, during that time in film school, uh, while I was getting my university degree, that's when I picked up stand-up comedy. It's something that I'd been aspiring to do uh, mm. since, you know, I discovered my uh, love of, of theatrics. And uh-huh. so, so I took that on. And I mean, if... <laughs> If you don't want to get 
sober and and you have a problem with alcohol <laughs> then probably backstage at a comedy club is the best place for you like if yeah. you <laughs> yeah yeah if yeah. you want to perpetuate your bad habits yeah uh it's often that that scene can can really do that for you uh especially in the period of time that that i was in that scene yeah. um so i started in <laughs> i started in 2003 uh, and so a- anything I could get my hands on, I could. And, uh, so, uh, I was, uh, drinking very regularly because bar tabs were often picked up for me. Uh, I would get mm-hmm. a lot of free drinks mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, there was plenty of cocaine to go around. So I was having a, a, a lot of, uh, ups and downs because of that usage horrible drug to mix with someone who has a bipolar uh you know who has bipolar disorder it's 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 Mm -hmm. an absolute horrible mix for that and so all that was going on uh i i did have a moderate amount of success and things were moving in in the right direction but the there i I don't want to call it self-sabotage because it, it didn't really uh, I, I don't like that word, but w- what happened was I chose drinking over uh, over the career that I could have had as a stand-up comedian. So mm-hmm. that's what it came down to. There were moments in my life where I had a choice and I chose the addiction over getting help. So I burned many bridges. I burned bridges with agents, with comedy clubs, with talent bookers and with, uh, you know, with television producers, uh, that were quite interested in, you know, giving me a a 25 minute special here in Canada. I had that pretty much, uh, you know, in the works and my, my reputation really got ahead of me. And, uh, and so it was just, I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, not, not selected for, uh, a round of, yeah. uh, of, 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 of a season of a particular special. So they, yeah. And, and that definitely had to do with my behavior and my behavior around the scene and my reputation. Absolutely. So, uh, that, that's a little bit of what it was like, but honestly, to, to really sum it up, I spent a lot of time in my bedroom with, uh, you know, like the sheets sort of all over the place, mm-hmm. uh, in the dark, I spent a lot of time smoking cigarettes by myself, high out of my head, um, on the balcony of my apartment, um, and uh, and going out as little as I could, and that's kind of what ended up the the last few years. I ended up in a psych psych ward uh, three times in the period of three years, uh, right before I had to go to rehab. So that's what the end of it all was like for me, the end of my uh, addiction. It was a really, really uh, low bottom where I scraped along the bottom for three years. Did you ever um, go back and try stand-up or uh, pursuing your career again after sobriety? What I actually did was I took a six-year break from stand-up. And so, um, yeah, I I, I had... uh, I'd been given advice not to return and to go get a minimum wage job and start your life over again. And I did, and it probably was the best advice that I ever got. It was just, Mm -hmm. you know what, Seth, um, this is probably a a, a really bad pattern because you'll go into the hospital, you'll, you know, feel a little more comfortable with the way that you're feeling and your health and everything. But your number one priority while you're in the hospital would be to get back out working, doing standup. Mm-hmm. I was booking tours with my agent on the phone in the psych ward sometimes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Like I had yeah. no idea when I was getting out of the hospital, but I was like, I need to, I need to stay working. I need to keep doing comedy and stuff. Yeah. And, I, and, and that really, really hurt me in the long run. So when people, and not just one person, people in the program, psychiatrists, Mm-hmm. Uh, my counselors, my family, when you hear this renowned, <laughs> resounding, uh, you know, uh, um, consensus that says, don't do stand up comedy again. I finally yeah. listened and said, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So yeah. I stayed away from it for six years <clears throat> and I returned to, to stand up for about 
10 months and the amount of depressed amateur stand-up comedians out there with substance substance abuse issues and being around them so much it just really made me uh irritable being yeah. around them and it just wasn't yeah. a good place to be and i also was like the my t- i've lost my touch on on this like it'll take a long time for me to get this back so I, unless i have uh, all of my time to devote to this like i did at one point in my life i'm gonna have to just leave this behind as and and uh and let my ego go and know that i had a good time uh i I did have some good times on stage but uh this is not it's not in the cards for me yeah yeah i think one of the really good points you've made in there seth that i don't want our listeners to miss is um giving yourself permission to let to allow yourself to just go be average, you know, but maybe mm-hmm. I don't need to go back to trying to resurrect some grandiose, um, you know, space I could have maybe achieved, but let me, let's just start with average. Let me just try going to work every day and showing up and meeting my obligations and my responsibilities. I mean, we, we tell people that all the time, um, and, and living in Nashville here in the music Mecca where we are, we've always got people that are, uh, that I work with that are trying to either hang on to a career, resurrect a career, keep the fire burning and their people around them trying to make it all happen. And what they really need is just to maybe, um, just have to go to work at a, <laughs> you know, just, I, I just need to be at work at eight tomorrow and maybe then I'll figure out something better. But, um, the pressure to, uh, focus on that career, like you were saying, you know, booking, <laughs> booking dates from the psych unit, you know, that, um, that's not a path to health. Um, at that point, you're still trying to hold on to something else. And so, um, I, I really, I appreciate you making that point. Cause I think in addiction, we all have this grandiosity and, and, mm-hmm. uh, just have to yeah. give ourselves permission to be average. Yeah. Yeah. Become, as they told me in the program, just another bozo on the bus. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And there's a lot of value and a, a lot, there are a lot of lessons to be learned if you take that path for a little period of your life because you don't know what is going to present itself to you, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what did that look like for you? What was the minimum wage job? What was it? I, I, yeah, I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to get hired. First of all, you know, mm-hmm. like I I was in I was in treatment and I was telling my counselor like, you know, here's a list of 10 worries about returning to uh, you know, regular society and just and trying to make a living and everything and they were just like, yeah, you're going to drive yourself crazy if you if you just worry about all those 10 things, just just start working away one thing at a time. And so if you don't have a job now, then get a resume together and put it out there. And I did. And I got hired within two weeks of, uh, you know, putting resumes mm-hmm. out. I got hired at Staples. I ended up running their uh, print copy and print center. I ended up really liking that job. And uh, the manager there, uh, I was, you know, open with him pretty early on because we ended up having a, a staff party where, people were going to be drinking alcohol. And I said, look, I'll come. Uh, I need to leave early, but I, I do have a problem with alcohol and and I've just got out of treatment. And I went to, you know, three national conferences with that manager. Um, together, we became very close friends. He helped me quit smoking. Um, mm. he, you know, he um, provided a lot of basic guidance in my life that I, I really didn't have stuff that I really missed out on in my twenties. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, I think that that, that was kind of some, some valuable stuff that I, that I learned there. Uh, and so that was, was what was happening in my professional life, you know, getting up in the morning, going to work and, and just being okay with it kind of being like, uh, Bill Murray and Groundhog's Day because I came home to the sober living house I lived in one day just griping and I said you know what every morning I get on the same bus and there's the same people and I get off at the same bus stop and the same people get off with me and they walk to their jobs and it's just it's just so monotonous and then when I leave work it's the same stuff 
and uh, and people had to point out to me, you know, you know like, well, <laughs> what was like bef- life like before? You know, like uh, what 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 could you really count on before you came into this? And then I started to have a little bit of gratitude about you know this routine that I was in. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, and sometimes life before is <laughs> the same stuff. I mean, a lot yeah. of my days it started out the same way every day, not in a good way. <laughs> But it was the same day every day. It was Groundhog Day. Every time I woke up, it was like, oh, shit, here I go again. And, uh, yeah, I get that. Yeah. yeah. It can be the routine can be on the other end of it. So how do you how do you segue into uh, eventually, a, you know, here's the stand-up guy in recovery, um, and you segue into becoming a chaplain in treatment? Yeah. So what happened was right after I got out of treatment, bunch of guys were going to church. I had a car. I'd been kind of, you know, on the periphery of the spiritual side of the program. And this one guy was like, you want to drive me to church? I don't have a car. I'm, I'm still in treatment, but I can leave on Sunday morning. And I said, I'll go with you. I went there and uh, it wasn't the style of church that I was used to. And the uh, preaching wasn't as academic I guess that I would have wanted. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of what I really would, would have liked. It was very kind of of a beginner's uh, introductory, uh, you know, message to Christianity every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And eventually my friend went back to his home in, in, in uh, a different part of BC and in, uh, in, in Canada. And so, there I was, I didn't have a church to go to. One day I went to church with my dad and we went to the Lutheran church that he, he went to. And the pastor said, well, you should just, just go, go to the church, the Lutheran church, you know, where you live right now and, and see if you like that. And I went and I did. And lo and behold, this pastor is, was a, a former prison chaplain and I went to a treatment center where there was a chaplain and one of the best experiences when I was in treatment, I was in treatment for five months was when I did my fifth step with the chaplain and, you know, the, the process of that person just letting me be and letting me speak about all these horrible things that I'd been carrying around and, and the grace that that person exhibited in the room when I completed my fifth with them was amazing. I was like, well, that's, that's something different. I've never experienced that. And then here I am, I built a relationship with a pastor who was a a prison chaplain. And I learned a lot about his, his job. And one day when he was preaching, I I just thought, you know, I, I could be, I could be a pastor like that. I could be a chaplain. And then I told a few people and they said, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're definitely gifted in that, in that regard. So some people in recovery started saying, yes, you should do that. And uh, suddenly, you know, the seminary found out that I was interested in it, and then they started hassling me, and uh, and, then, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I I applied to seminary, and the treatment center I went to said, if if you're thinking of becoming a chaplain, why don't you become a support worker here? And I started working there, and eventually, uh, after getting enough seminary training and doing my um, my clinical pastoral education as a chaplain in a hospital, which I, I did a three month internship in a hospital. Then uh, after that, I returned to the treatment center and they said, well, then you can join the chaplaincy staff. And that's how all that happened. And uh, it, 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 it happened a lot. <laughs> it, it, feel, it felt like that was never going to happen when it was when the process was happening, you know, like I, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the process, I said, I don't have the skills. There are all these, there's, here's a list of objections that I can come up with that make me unqualified for this. And I had some thinking that was just saying, you'll never make it. You're not worthy of this position. Uh, You might as well give up. Mm. And I, I don't know how I ended up not giving up though. I think really the only thing uh, that kept me going were, uh, you know, my relationship with God, but really my relationship with God as it's exhibited through the lives of other people, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were, at this point, uh, you know, toward the tail end of your uh, your period of active addiction, you had become very isolated and a loner. Now, mm-hmm. from what I'm hearing, uh, you're in relationship with quite a few people, and you're you're t- 
disclosing your fears and your ambitions and your get, uh, soliciting and receiving input. It sounds like you've got a lot more social connection at this point in your life. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I can't uh, stress that uh, more as, 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 as if you're new in recovery, um, stay connected in whatever way you can, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I really, I took that on, uh, you know, find different communities to, to have your back really, because I had my church community. I had, uh, my work community, you know, the, Mm -hmm. at the treatment center, we had this wonderful group of staff that I worked with, uh, for the, my period, for the period of time that I, that I worked there for, and forged really good friendships because you go through a lot of stuff working with people as they come into treatment. You never know what's going to happen day in, day out at a treatment center of that size that has 120 beds, that has wow. patient, new patients coming in every day mm-hmm. uh, in, in all sorts of different uh, states. You know, and, uh, and I had my church community as well. Yeah. Um, people that were... <laughs> And that, that was the biggest part is that, you know, I'd walked away from the church at age 15 and I thought that I was not worthy to return to the church that I was baptized in, the, to the church that I was raised in because, you know, I, I'd used drugs, uh, you know, at, I'd used drugs at church camp. I decided not <laughs> to go to church. I tr- decided not to go to church, uh, you know, when I was 16, I didn't want to go to church in the morning because I'd have a hangover, you know, like that, that, that's, that was the thinking that just said, you know, you're, you're, you're definitely not worthy to be here, but people just kept a loving me up and B saying like, you know, a big part of us, uh, being a Christian community has to do with grace. So we're going to give you that grace. Right. And, and also we need you as a leader in this church, by the way, too. So they kept telling me that. And eventually I, I got the confidence to be able to, you know, to take on the training and take on that role as a, as a leader really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, Seth, what were some of the things that maybe you learned uh, from some of the patients that you encountered um, when you were doing your your work as a chaplain? So I would say that the number one lesson was that I have no control over another person's thoughts in the way that they think about me and their actions. Mm. And um, <laughs> that that lesson is uh, is the hardest to learn and I'm still learning it. I've gotten better at having awareness around that issue of control. Now I would say this, you know, like my process to coming, you know, to believe in a higher power and, uh, also my process of learning and getting skills in terms of sharing uh, the awareness that I have of a higher power with other people and fostering their own relationship with that. You know, I I would think that, hey, I've got this positive outlook on life and I just want to share it with you. I just want to share these things that I've learned about my higher power with you. I want to share this knowledge that I have about spirituality with you. I want to guide you and walk you through the process of working on your fourth step and your fifth step. We'll do that together. You know, I I'll be around to do seminars. We'll just do, you know, so positive stuff. I'm going to, I'm giving you this gift. Not everyone wants it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the problem that I run into is trying to force feed people that, mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, that's, that was the early on as a, as a chaplain, I just had to learn that, Sometimes when I step into the office one-on-one, uh, which, you know, my, my regular schedule would be come into the treatment center and, and expect that on most days that you'll be doing at least one fifth step. And sometimes people aren't going to be ready, uh, you know, mentally or physically to, to do it really. Uh, maybe they don't, maybe they're just not truly in treatment because they want to be there and I can't, I I just won't be able to take them as far as I think that they could go. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing that, then I'm working against higher power in the room, 
in the moment, you know, Mm -hmm. and I can't work against that. And so what I learned from the chaplains who'd been doing it for a while is recognize when you're working against higher power in the moment, see the higher power in their own actions and adjust your expectations. Mm. David, I have to ask you, uh, you know, how you resonate with this principle that Dave, that Seth is articulating, because, you know, you, you, you spend every day with people who are paying to sit with you as a recovery coach. Mm -hmm. Do you find that there are some of those clients who, even though they came of their own free will, and even though they're paying you, they don't really want to do recovery? (laughs) Yeah, all the time. And I've had to, um, I think realize that there may be something like, like Seth was pointing out, there may be something that we're saying right now that they're either not able or willing to apply. Um, Mm -hmm. but that I've had people, you know, just leave and, you know, say, yeah, I, you know, I think I'm, I need more research or something. And, you know, I don't hear from them for months and then, you know, the phone rings and they're like, um, there, there was this one thing you said when I used to come to see you and it sort of stuck with me and I want to come back because maybe I want to revisit this a little bit, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit on the, on the higher power piece or on the, um, powerlessness over this substance piece. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that there, there are times people can't, uh, process it. Um, just they, their shame is still too great or, or whatever it is. Um, but, um, right. I, I mean, I agree with, with Seth, there are people that you, that you see and they want help, but what they really, what they don't understand coming in is the, um, you know, um, the disruption that sobriety really is going to be. And when you begin to get into some of that, um, they kind of go away sad for a little while and sometimes they come back and sometimes I don't see them. So. Yeah. Yeah. But, and I do know that, you know, personally as a recovering person that I have at times been ambivalent about my own recovery. I mean, I, I, I want to stop this behavior, but I don't want to change anything else. And I don't want to involve anybody else. Uh, and my shame is such that uh, I really want to keep the process completely secret. And let's, uh, so that I can conquer this weakness or vulnerability, whatever it is, and then go on as though it never happened. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of strategy has never paid out, you know, panned out for me. Yeah. Seth, did you find any uh, things that you felt like kind of jumped out as common ideologies people had about themselves or God um, as as people who were active in their addiction? You know, what were what were some of the common things that you felt like, um, you know, like, oh, man, here we go. And you're hearing the same stories with different faces and names. So the the most common thing that I hear from people, um, you know, and and I've worked in numerous different settings. So uh, I, you know, I I worked at Edgewood Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center in Nanaimo, BC. Um, They had a a contract with the the Department of National Defense with numerous first responding organizations, Mm -hmm. the unions. So, you know, we had folks from that background. We also had people that were oil work, <clears throat> oil workers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's a completely different background, you know, tradespeople. We also had indigenous people from different parts of the country who would, would be sent, uh, you know, by their, uh, by their bands and, and by their nations to the treatment center for, uh, for addiction issues. So very different cultural backgrounds. In all these types of people, and I even worked for a, uh, an indigenous organization that worked pretty much within a treatment center with about eighty percent of the people being um, being indigenous. Um, so all those different backgrounds, thinking about all of them, and even you can throw in your doctors and lawyers who would also come on their own dime, and you could throw in um, gang members that would also be mm-hmm. there. Um, so huge diverse group of people mm-hmm. but what would i hear the most it would be that something in my childhood relating to spirituality there was some sort of trauma there was some sort of harm or there was things said to me that just simply didn't make sense to me as i grew up 
and there there that ends up building a resentment against God that many people have. Mm-hmm. Mm. I had that issue as well, you know, like I I there I'm like, well, this you say this church is for everybody, but you're, you know, you're you you know, you have people's you know, talking uh ill against other religions with uh you you have people talking ill against many different uh groups of people in 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 uh, that that are accepted in other parts of society and I just had a major resentment against the church that I grew up in mm-hmm. and I wasn't alone in that, you know? Right. So, um, that is often the number one hurdle when you introduce yourself to a patient when they're in the treatment center and you say that you're a chaplain and they are like, what's that? Mm-hmm. And then you, and then you got to explain and then, you know that you're going to get some questions coming at you, you know, like uh, either they'll ask them right away or you'll, you'll, you know, they'll just say, can, can we talk? And then you'll sit down with them and they'll start asking you specific questions about God. And then my response as a chaplain is to really just say, so what's the story behind the question and start making observances about what I see in them, how they're, you know, if they're asking me questions that, that would say, so, so if if God says that that this is a sin, this specific thing is a sin, and I do that, and but God forgives everybody, why? Like, what's the, what's the deal with that? Why do I, you know? And 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 instead of saying, hey, okay, let's get into a heady philosophical theological discussion mm-hmm. about this, mm-hmm. let's instead say, you know what, you look really uncomfortable right now. And just hold space in that moment. Yeah. And then see what happens. Because it's more valuable to me for to hold a mirror up to a person in the moment than it is to start explaining stuff that's just going to go in one ear and maybe go out the other. Mm-hmm. I don't think people really want the theological uh, the, the, you know, explanation. They, they would be served more by processing their feelings and getting a deeper connection with whatever spiritual force has brought them into a treatment center. Yeah, exactly. I always say that my position on baptism didn't keep me sober, you know, um, Mm -hmm. that just, you know, (laughs) um, that wasn't what I needed, uh, to hear. And, uh, yeah. So, um, so you saw folks with a lot of trauma, a lot of shame and, um, and, and helping them, uh, embrace maybe maybe a higher power that didn't look like the one they thought they um, were presented with in their childhood that they rejected was that often kind of your role? Absolutely. You know, first and foremost, uh, when starting work on the fourth and fifth step, I'd just say before we go any further, tell me what your uh, your idea on higher power is at this moment. You know, like, what are you thinking, right? Because, and and and, and I'd say th- this is your chance to really uh, to make this something specifically unique to you. This should be a vision, uh, you know, and an understanding of higher power as you know it in this very moment. Mm-hmm. And if and if you're having trouble with that, let's reflect on some of the good things that have happened to you since you came into treatment. You're at, you're at the point where you're willing to work on a fourth step. You haven't left the building. The doors aren't locked. What's kept you in here? What are those good things that are happening to you on a regular basis? Because you're here treating yourself with care every day by deciding to stay. So what's up? What's behind that? And and start at that point. It has to start at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Seth, I do want to ask you, you've now made... You've now made the transition to a full-time pastoral ministry. Is that true? That's right. Okay. Which brings uh, a different set of expectations in my experience. I served, uh, you know, five uh, years in the ministry, low many, many years ago. Uh, But during those years, I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to uh, perform and to appear uh, like I had my act together and to be the designated explainer. 
And, uh, and it was not safe for me to have questions of my own or to show, uh, you know, failure or, or weakness in any other than, you know, the most venial of sins. Are you feeling that? Have you encountered that? Or are you able to, uh, how are you doing, how are you setting up culture in the congregation that you serve as far as your role goes? So there's two answers to that. And the first one is, of course, I come up against uh, issues around me wanting to appear perfect and me wanting to, uh, you know, not look like I'm struggling, like I'm keeping it together. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm over a year in pandemic ministry and that certainly has, I've tried to have a, a tough exterior and be, you know, be, mm-hmm. be present for the people that are in my congregation that have struggled. And there's been n- numerous people in our ch- church community here in Kingston that uh, the pandemic has really been hard on. But at the same time, I am someone who has learned the value of transparency through yeah. the program, the 12 steps through the culture of the treatment center that I worked mm-hmm. at. So um, I know the people in the leadership structure where I can be transparent and uh, that I can can talk about things like we have lay leaders, we have a council, and I feel safe saying, you know, this is this is a place where I, this is a place in ministry where I don't feel supported. You guys need to support me a little bit more here. This is what's going on in my own life. Um, uh, right now and when I can find a time to disclose. So pandemic stress has, it really hit me hard in the late spring of last year. So, uh, so what I did was I, uh, you know, I have a, I have a, a health plan. So I, I spent all, all of my budget, uh, uh, for psychological counseling last, last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I spent the whole five, thousand dollars that was allotted in my health plan to have a psychologist appointment every week from last june on you know and i I, and i needed that absolutely so i and but that's not the culture in the denomination really sure there are still some people that would that would not do that and uh so that's one thing another thing is that i need i needed someone outside of my church and you know this is something that is recommended by our denomination. And I just needed a pastor for myself because I do a lot of pastoring for other people and I need someone who's completely objective. So monthly I meet with a a spiritual director who's another minister Mm -hmm. and we meet for an hour on, on uh, zoom and they kind of say like, all right, let's chart out the next month. What Mm -hmm. are you doing? You know, what are your goals? How are you developing spiritually? And how are you going to guide this congregation further after, after, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, it's been working really to have someone to bounce ideas off of and to be guided by, you know, so I need, I need to have that structure in place so that, uh, you know, I can be open about, where, where my deficits are. And, and, you know, uh, I have defects of character and I need to make sure that I'm maintaining my, my life. The other thing is I've, I was bold enough to say this pandemic's been going on for a while. I've been working long hours. I need two weeks of leave. Uh, I have, I, I have not left really the city that I live in for, you know, for a year, we, we, my wife and I'd love to take vacation, but I like, I, I don't want to waste vacation time just staying at home. And I, what I really need right now after Easter is two weeks off to, to take care of myself. And mm. our, our, our lay leadership or our council just said, whatever you need, two weeks. Absolutely. You know, so to have that support important as well. Man, yeah. fantastic. That's yeah. great. Self-care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Seth, are, are you open to uh, maybe connection with some of our listeners who want to follow up with what they've heard? Absolutely, yeah. What What's the best way for them to reach you? 
So there's two ways. The best way to engage with me, uh, if you have any anything specific, uh, is contact me through my YouTube channel, which is uh, Seth Perry on YouTube. You'll find me. It's Seth Perry Addiction Recovery Spirituality, and that is a, a YouTube channel where I speak in complete lay terms about spirituality as it relates to recovery. So this is just the, just the, the skills that I've had as a chaplain applied to spirituality for people recovering from anything. Mm. So you can leave comments on, on my videos. You can request videos that way. If you want to contact me directly, uh, you can contact me at vegan pastor on Instagram, those DMS. If you direct message me that way, you can, you can, you can contact me that way or veganpastor1 at gmail.com. I'll answer stuff there as well. And I'm always open to suggestions for what to make a video on next. Great. Fantastic. That sounds great. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. This has been uh, an enlightening uh, and inspiring uh, uh, conversation, Seth. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's great that we had this chance to to talk. Uh, Yeah, I had a great time. All right, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Nate, I really enjoyed that conversation with Seth Perry. Um, I I mean, this is a guy, you know, I mean, two things that I really felt like were really pertinent in his uh, observations as a chaplain. And one was that um, he uh, he had to accept where people were in the moment and their capacity to process an idea or a concept or something that he was trying to present to them. And he had to realize, again, that, you know, he none of us can control what other people think, feel, believe, accept. We just have to put the message out there and maybe it'll sit there and maybe it's just a seed, you know? Uh, but I yeah. thought that was really important. The other thing was actually earlier in the conversation where he talked about in becoming, you know, his, his initial, uh, foray into recovery was that he had to just go do some really average yeah. daily stuff you know, um, and, and I had to relax this, um, maybe grandiosity, at least, you know, Mm -hmm. some really high reaching ambition, um, because that would have just been the focus of his recovery. Had he not done that? I thought those two things were, were standouts to me because those are conversations I have a lot with people, you know, it's okay to be average. It's okay to just, let's just press pause on greatness for a minute and just let's, uh, let's just settle into being normal and bored. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's ask the listeners, what was it uh, out of our conversation with Seth that struck you? Uh, what was it that was perhaps, you know, sparked an insight that you hadn't seen before? What resonated with something that, you know, what can you add to the conversation? Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, so give us your thoughts. Drop us a line at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Well, we're close to wrapping up, but before we go, David, would you please remind our listeners about our sponsor? Yes, we are grateful for, um, better help, H E L P betterhelp.com. And, um, if you will sign on to betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, uh, you will get a discount on your services there, and we will also get to find out uh, what resources are resonating with you guys. Um, the important thing about BetterHelp.com is that it's an online therapy um, uh, resource. You will get an assigned therapist that's a licensed clinical therapist that you can uh, use uh, over and over again. Um, you can also change if that's not a good fit, but you can, you can get online and, and begin to deal with the things that maybe, 
uh, we find awkward or hard, even mm-hmm. um, as the pandemic is winding down, to get out and get into an office somewhere. This is something you can do from home um, at your convenience, your schedule, and um, and and take the time to to address your depression or your anxiety, um, you know, uh, your compulsive issues, all the things you would go and talk to anyone else about. They're not a crisis hotline, but they are an online therapy service. So uh, access betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and um, get your discounted uh, start to better help. All right. Well, that does it for this week. We have more uh, great conversations coming up in the weeks ahead. But for now, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 